Welcome, Digital Wildcatters. Good morning. Sorry. I'm a little full of energy today. That was Damn, a little much. Dude. It's morning wow. somewhere. Yeah, that was a little much. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Digital Wildcatters. Big digital. We got to make this a good show, Chuck. So yeah, let's did. go. Let's do go. this, okay. man. Okay, let's do this. Welcome, Digital Wildcatters, to BDE, your weekly summary of the energy business for people that think Jim Cramer sucks. Issue number one. <laughs> do we have a banking update? Because I kind of do. I read this fascinating article about what was going down at Silicon Va uh, Valley Bank during all this. Basically, Moody's calls and says, we're thinking about a downgrade. Your portfolio is dropping in value. Uh, they go, okay, to shore up liquidity, they decide to sell par value $25 billion worth of treasuries that they know they're not going to get par for. So they're calling around. They've got the Goldman trading desk on the phone saying, how much will you pay for this? Because Goldman's going to buy it and then turn around and sell it. And, you know, they're going to mark it up, make some money. Yeah, of course. Silicon Valley Bank's trying to get the highest price. And then they're mm -hmm. going to, Silicon Valley Bank is going to then, the shortfall, actually try to do an equity deal to patch it up. So right. they're, so it's kind of this big iteration of how much we're going to sell the bonds for, whatever the shortfall is to par, we've got to do an <clears> equity deal. And this thing literally over is happening over like a four or five day period. So, I mean, just rapidly quick. And Goldman is also leading the equity deal, right? So there's a Chinese <laughs> wall up. But the, the wildest part about this story is they were having Zoom calls where literally the trading desk of Goldman, they would talk to them and then they would send them into the waiting room. And then the other Zoom room would pop up and it was the equity guys Damn, doing the man. deal. So they're iterating all through this. And basically, you have to have projections to be able to do your equity offering. You're going to bring institutions over the wall. So they go to do that. And the projections are literally changing every 20 seconds because if you withdraw money from the bank, yeah, the projections change. So stock starts going into a tailspin. Moody's is coming, saying we're going two down. They're hoping to two downgrades they're hoping to come in with here's our solution and it's all iterating goldman has the equity deal done supposedly the two and a half billion dollars they get the bonds priced and all that but what happened would be as part of that deal silicon valley bank was going to have to say there's been no material change in our uh in our <laughs> which things change every 20 yeah, minutes and then, but supposedly they got it right there. They're about to do it. And then Silvergate Bank, the crypto bank, mm -hmm. went under and that just blew the whole thing. The whole up. deal. And literally uh, within 24 hours on that Thursday, uh, $45 billion was withdrawn from the bank and boom. But l the wildest thing about that is this whole iteration. And we used to talk about deals like that in terms of months. I mean, that was right. less than this a week. Was, this was hours. And so, you know, it's combination of Twitter being able to tell mm. stories, rumors immediately. It Absolutely. is technology being able to withdraw your money from your app. Um, and it's climate change. I mean, you know, they're worried about the climate. So, uh, But it, it's crazy if, that regulation they don't has act to quickly. keep up. Regulation has to keep up with all that. And it just didn't. I mean, all the regulations we have with banks and 
were all built back in 08, 09, and it literally had to do with how many regional... Uh, but what regulations would have stopped this? Well, that's true. I mean, this was just... this was Capital mis- requirements, maybe? Because capital maybe. requirements yeah, are... Yeah, ba- that's a good point. Capital requirements are based on how many branches do you have? How yeah. much money can physically be withdrawn with people in line? With the app, boom, it happens like that. But, I mean, not to get off topic, but I don't want to be relying upon a government to protect me from myself. I mean, this was this was fiscal mismanagement. Oh, totally. Um, and I'm the libertarian, so I'm not suggesting. Yeah. I just, I, I pose it as very interesting because. Super boom, interesting. Boom. But the regulatory processes have got to be revamped to acknowledge the lightning speed at which things occur today right i mean exactly but that's you're you're applying that's the concern though i mean not to tinfoil hat on us here but but that is my concern is that banks are becoming gobbled up by just bigger banks we're all going to be forced to move to bigger banks and guess what the federal government loves is I want to be able to know what's in everyone's bank account. I want to be able to digitally withdraw it when I need it. Um, that That's the concern that I have. And I think that's where the regulatory, we need to be very careful. Yeah. Because it's, you look at the, the <clears throat> regional banks and I didn't write down the number, but I want to say something like $150 billion in deposits have been taken out in the last uh, Week and two a half. weeks. Yeah. yeah from this and so you know you get rid of regional banks and Mm -hmm. and all and so i mean where this comes back to energy and we kind of talked about this on previous episodes is you know you stop lending money out consumers stop purchasing businesses stop investing that's a recession recession leads to, to less consumption and so we can have our heads around the supply side of this equation mm-hmm. and underinvestment and all that. If nobody's buying oil, price goes down. Well, here's another banking story I found fascinating is that the reason Credit Suisse went under like it did is the Saudis, the Saudi bank, Saudi National Bank bought 9.9%. They put money into Credit Suisse to sort of like give them some some capital to because uh, they were worried of was that three weeks ago. Well, the problem is that the chairman of Saudi National Bank, Al Qadari, went on television and said, quote, that he's we're not putting any more money into Credit Suisse. And he's saying that because once you get over that 10% threshold, it becomes a regulatory problem. But he went out on TV anyway and said, hey, we're not putting more bank, which actually forced Credit Suisse. That's when the people made a run on Credit Suisse. So they did this hasty merger with UBS. And so the Saturday National uh, Bank chairman resigned actually nine hours ago because of this, this issue. It's like he went, he actually fucked up one of the biggest banks in Europe. He lit the fuse. Yeah. He lit the fuse. So the, the story I love was Credit Suisse back in the day bought DLJ, Donaldson, Lufkin, Generat. And why widely acknowledged is just a horrible deal, right? They paid right. up for all these people, people left and all. And a, a friend of mine was the last DLJ guy in the Credit Suisse office in Houston and was telling somebody one night over a beer, they can't get rid of me because then they would have you know, paid all this money and they'd have nothing to show for <laughs> it. 
And uh, <laughs> my friend countered back with, oh, they plan to get rid of you so they can just bury it and forget it ever it happened. happened. That's <laughs> so, right. Yeah, but this, we got to keep watching this banking mess because um, it, it really is. I mean, just a crazy world. Regulations have not kept up with uh, reality. Runs on bank are a real thing. And so. Which is making all our friends in energy a little nervous around whether they're going to have money in their bank account come tomorrow. Exactly. Exactly. All right, Mark, you were talking to me earlier about two stories. You got a Ramco uh, in China doing a refining deal, and you got Petronas aggressively expanding upstream and LNG stuff. What's going on there? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, two separate deals. One was a 10% stake in a Petchem complex called Rongsheng Petrochemical Company. That 10% stake is worth $3.6 billion. But what it does is tie Aramco to the Rongsheng refinery, which is about 480,000 barrels a day of crude. In a separate deal, you've got another one um, where essentially it, it, it's, a, it's a similar type of, of footprint where you've got Petchem in conjunction with uh, refining that adds another... 210,000 barrels a day of Saudi crude into the Chinese refining systems as a result of these deals. And the article talks about what, <clears throat> what the situation is in China, China's long refining capacity, right? So the sanctioned nations, Russia and Iran, are in a battle with those that aren't. And so Aramco has decided my take is it's time to get aggressive with taking market share uh, with their number one customer. So they've done that um, ostensibly through these two deals. And I think it also speaks to what the Saudis believe about just the structural future of oil and gas over a much longer period of time. You don't make these types of investments on a short and medium term look. Um, so, I think from that standpoint, mm -hmm. it's it's a big it's a big indicator of what you know what they believe is going to happen um, long term with Chinese demand. Kirk, I mean, Mark, I, the question for you guys. Uh, yeah, go, go ahead, because yeah, then ahead. I got a question on. Because I think the the bigger question from this is yes, long term they believe in in oil. You could say they have a lot of it, so maybe that's why. Does this put the yuan on the table for replacing U.S. dollars for denominating oil barrels. That's a damn question. Because that's a big fucking deal if that happens. The only good news on why it might not is because it's really hard to read Chinese unless you've uh, been studying it. So I am going to say that the dollar is going to stay. But Mark, in all seriousness, what do you think that means? Well, I, I do think that it at least becomes – one of the leading conversation items in the in just the global tug of war between oil market and geopolitical alliances. This has cropped up here, what, in the last two or three years and has accelerated given what's happened with, um, you know, with the new administration, the relations with, with Saudi and OPEC. And then um, I think the Chinese have taken on a much more aggressive posture and that that is naturally 
a potential geopolitical advantage for them that we've got to think about. I'm not I mean, suggesting it's going this. to happen, but we we'll probably talk about this on the show almost every week that that you know those nations with the cheapest energy are the winners, right? And China knows that. The Saudis know that. Um, you know th what you hear. What th these those two deals are interesting because they're they're head down looking at how do we create long term relationships that are going to provide the best financial um, success for our country, our state. Aramco, I mean, you know, Saudi Arabia and China, that makes sense. At Zero Week, you heard guys like Darren Woods, who I do not have on speed dial, by the way, the CEO of Exxon, but I'll soon probably fix that once we have drinks next week. Um, was that know, a total name drop? That was another name I, drop. That was br brilliant, dude. Yeah, he said, didn't mean to he said as long as there's gasoline and diesel demand, having Exxon make it will be a cleaner option, he said. What's funny is the American-based companies are all fighting over, hey, we're long oil and gas because we can make it cleaner because oil and gas will be here longer. You're not seeing that rhetoric out of China. You're not seeing that rhetoric out of the, the uh, Middle East either. Uh, they, they leave it to us as a distraction and you know, continue to, to get stuff built in relatively short order. And you know, their, their number one concern, I think, is the... Indian energy minister expressed at the outset of the you know debate over who should or should not buy Russian barrels is we're going to do what's best for our own economic and financial well-being because they understand that 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 is one of the quickest ways or or, or catalysts for political instability is rising fuel prices. Uh, so it's it's also interesting here because <clears throat> RBC. Put out a report this week said that saying that we're going to see the greatest increase in refining capacity mm. over the next two years that we've seen in the last forty. This year we're supposedly worldwide we're adding one and a half million barrels a day, and then next year just over two point four million uh, barrels a day in capacity, mm -hmm. and more than a third of that's in China. Right. So I mean, those guys are potentially playing chess while we're playing checkers. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, if you saw what, what, what Italy, last week they published a policy for phasing out public financial support for coal, oil, and gas projects overseas. But they're shifting away from Russian gas because of clearly the war. They're actually now searching for, they're about to abandon their sort of COP26 pledges on climate because they need secure and cheap energy. And I see this, I mean, of course, that's the trend. We're seeing it. Like the, the pendulum is swinging while we're the talking heads, especially in the more advanced nations, are still talking climate, climate. But we're seeing all these moves around the world of countries saying, hey, we need to think about being able to feed our people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we've said this a million times on here. And I think I wore the uh, actual appropriate shirt. So I'll go ahead and stand up to show it. Um, I wore the appropriate For those listening, it says I pee in pools. There is no peeing and non-peeing section of the pool. If China and India are going to be peeing in the pool, <laughs> we're kind of hosed. And, well, but, but where Great that, analogy, Chuck. But where that comes <clears throat> back to U.S. policy on a serious note is, you know, should we be spending all this money revamping our transportation system to electric vehicles, or should we be plunging that into technology to potentially decarbonize stuff, right? 
Good I point. mean, because at the end of the day, China and India are going to do it. They're doing it. They're doing it, you know. And, and part of Europe's doing it. Europe's starting to wisen up because they can't afford energy. Yeah. So let's let's be more thoughtful maybe where we're spending the dollars. Yeah, I so, agree. I mean, we're, I, I don't want what we've just been talking about to come off as BDE is sitting there saying, damn the environment, full speed ahead. We are saying we've got to face certain realities here to be thoughtful on how we approach well, this. Our listeners, if they knew us, know that we don't believe that. We're, but we're saying like economics always wins, by the way. Yeah. And that it should. And the, what's so funny is we can overlay on top of that that uh, New York is about to ban gas in buildings. <laughs> I mean, no more natural gas. And I don't know if that's an executive order, which it or an administrative order, which it sounds like it is, but a recent survey said that 51% don't approve of the ban. So at least from a popular sentiment standpoint. I mean, it's ridiculous. We all know it, but, um, but you know, uh, let New York do it. Let's see how that works out for them. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I just, I just hear, 90s random consultant going, Chuck's Frieza Yankee bumper stickers are coming back. I still don't think we should do that, guys, no matter how ridiculous they are. All right. This was crazy. We were talking about this in the the pre... It's almost like we actually had a pre-production meeting today. It was kind of nice. Well, the green room wasn't stocked like it usually is with all the accoutrements, but um, so, so... Instead of stuffing our faces, we talked. (laughs) Talked instead of chips and queso. But uh, Chubb, Chubb throwing their weight around. So you've got all these, you've got China, you've got, you've got the Saudis. Then you've got Chubb, who's one of the largest, the largest publicly traded insurer, insurance company. But they're one of the top 10 insurers worldwide to oil and gas companies. And they're now saying that if energy producers don't, cut their methane emissions, they're not going to get covered anymore by Chubb. And I'm thinking, and Chuck, you made a really good comment. Um, either A, they're, you know, they're being woke and they're turning away business if this is the case, or two, they're not making enough money in oil and gas so they can afford to turn down these customers. What, what say you? What do you think about that? I hadn't seen that. I think... <clears throat> You know, I do think it is part of the, I've always described ESG as a two-dimensional thing for companies that they have to deal with. One is playing the game, which is reporting policy, politics. The other is actually solving the problem. And so this seems to be disproportionately aimed at what you were just describing earlier, is companies and countries that produce the barrels with the cleanest ESG profile. So it's mm-hmm. counterproductive if we're trying to if we're trying to reshuffle the global production base to favor barrels that are cleaner. So yeah. we take away the ability to insure the business, right? Yeah. In Norway they they have hydrocarbon. I mean they have um hydro capacity, a lot of a lot of moving water to power to so their 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 actual carbon content in the barrels uh of a of a per barrel of oil is lower 
than it is in some other places. I mean, that's that's effectively interesting. I, I think the other part of it is maybe I, I I don't know who imposes the standards of methane <clears throat> reduction. You know, are you in the insurable bucket or viable client bucket or not, depending on your methane reduction performance, who sets those standards? Are they so easily achieved as the bar so low to get over? Mm. You know, I don't think a top 10 insurer in an in industry is ready to slam the brakes on that source of revenue by imposing just unrealistic or unilateral type of methane reduction standards. Um, you know, we've seen, I think Munich Re a couple of months ago talked about withdrawing and, and we've seen that out of some other European financial players. I seem to recall a uh, story about HSBC, obviously not an insurer, but, uh, and, and so it's, it's all of the, the, um, the the, finan the financial foundation or the ecosystem for oil and gas, of which <clears throat> insurance is a big part. So, so let me ask this question because I never did international stuff. I always said I was the greatest oil and gas guy on the planet, so long as Southwest flew there. You yeah, know, that was kind of right. my my jam. Is Venezuela using Chubb to insure stuff? <laughs> and, and no, <laughs> I ask this. As, I ask this as Probably. a serious question because. I mean, I would think Heavy if you're the oil. Venezuelan government, you're not insuring anything. You know, screw that. Who cares? You know, whatever. And so is it making it even worse? The U.S. companies, i.e., are we going to push more and more oil production to the dirtier countries because they're not using Chubb anyway? Yeah, good question. You know, is that ultimately? Well, it's going to keep out, you know, the, the Exxons and the Chevrons of the world because they actually have to follow the rules. But right. But but not the state owned, you know, yeah. oil oil companies probably don't. Yeah. Hmm. But what's interesting, speaking of, let's give a hand for North Africa. Libya and Algeria are back in a big way because of the Russian war. Um, we're seeing deals, you know, Halliburton, Chevron, uh, ENI, um, people are are moving quickly to develop there's been a lot of underinvestment in North Africa for for many reasons. But now North Africa is back in a big way of like, hey, we need to develop. There's, they have some of the largest oil reserves in the world. And so people are doing deals now and because they're trying to move their gas supply out of Russia. And um, I don't know, you know how the carbon content of, of, their, of their gas and their oil, but um, it's interesting to see that there's a lot of deals moving to North Africa again. Well, and, and I think related to that, <laughs> Petronas announced today in a story I saw on Energy Intelligence that they're upping their upstream CapEx 43% over the 18 to 22 run rate mm. with a big focus on LNG. Um, I think 63% of Petronas's 2.4 million barrels equivalent per day is gas. It's long been known as a gas province. They're a, num they're a top five LNG producer in, in the world. But like we've talked about before, we're seeing a lot of maneuvers to either secure supply or capture the financial and economic opportunity as a producer. And <clears throat> by my survey of, of these anecdotes, there's a lot of international players that are moving much more quickly than we are in the U.S. because they can, right? So... It's it's going to be interesting to see how much of the ultimate, you know, I, I believe, 
energy draft. Natural gas is going to be the big, you know, structural winner here. Um, you know, how much of that will we see um, relative to the U.S. and its position as as an LNG player? I think will be significant. Will we be number one over the long haul? Well, again, we've been talking a little bit about like China's got their head down. They're just doing, I mean, I think part of it, we got a regulatory issue with, with that's going to be a problem. But speaking of Petronas, since you mentioned it, I do want to go back. Everyone's talking about this documentary uh, about the Malaysian Flight 370. So I just want to hear from you, is it worth it? If is, is it worth the Netflix watch? Well, I, I spent some time working long distance on projects in Malaysia and flew triple sevens on Malaysian airlines. So um, it was interesting to me because of that long ago experience. I think it's worth watching uh, just because. What was, the, what was the the short 30 second summary? Because I vaguely remember so, watching TV back and hearing about yeah, this. Yeah. So on but. March 8th, 2014, a Malaysian triple seven that was bound from KL to Beijing, a red, red eye flight disappeared off radar in what I call the gray area between Malaysian airspace and Vietnam airspace, part of the handoff. And so there's all kinds of, of theories and scenarios as to what actually happened. They haven't found the plane yet. And it's, you know, over nine years ago, a lot of interesting data theories, investigative journalists, um, I mean, there all, was a all there kinds was a of thing experts. about the pilot who supposedly had a simulator at his house that that <laughs> was right. I mean, yeah. there was supposedly that was you know taking the plane to Kabul or you know whatever. Yeah, it's it, there was a it, lot. It's, of, it's just a fascinating that it's the first time in civil aviation history that 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 has happened and <clears throat> that a plane has completely disappeared and never been found. But they have found wreckage of it, correct? Yeah, and there's even interesting twists as to, you know, why that wreckage was found where it was and why it was found so easily by a certain person who had good luck on three different islands of, Find of finding wreckage. And there was missing, you know, there was missing identifiers for from some of this wreckage that, you know, like nameplate that should survive any kind of catastrophic stress. Right. <laughs> so... So do, do do this. Spoiler alert: If you're going to go watch the thing, turn it you know turn off BDE now. We've already counted you as a download. But um, anyway, what what are one or two theories behind this kind of the mystery? One one theory was that that it was deliberate by the pilot, based upon some of the simulation records that were extracted from his in-home simulator. Um, so just suicidal, want to end it? Yeah, or flight okay. flight crew flight crew that have worked and knew his track record are in vehement opposition to that 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 theory or that scenario. The lone gunman, right? There we go. All right. Uh, the other was, or there's a couple of others. One is that either by accident or deliberately, the plane was shot down in the area where it went off radar um, by unknown forces, there was military exercise activity going on in that area. Uh, the, the, the added kicker to this one is that there was a piece of cargo that was loaded on the plane that was not scanned and was escorted to the, the, the ramp to be loaded on the plane. So 
planes headed for China? You know, are we are we transporting something that is highly sensitive and something that maybe we don't want to get into the hands of of the Chinese? Uh, and so maybe we's are a lot, the United States, maybe folks right. from Europe that said, okay, let's take this down. Oh, wow. And, and, and the other was three Russian hijackers who actually got in through one of the hatches outside of the cockpit and were able to um, take complete control of the plane. There's an electronics, whole electronics mm -hmm. story around that that theory as well, <clears throat> and that maybe it was taken because of the available remaining fuel uh, it would have taken it to someplace like Kazakhstan. Oh, right? wow. So anyway, it's it's an interesting series of threads to to uh, kind of unravel here, but I won't give away the ending. Okay. No, I want to go watch it now. The, uh, it's a, it's a, it's three episodes. It's very quick. My watch. favorite thing, my wife loves to watch is like murder mysteries. The, 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 the one consistent thing I take away from all these is whenever you, um, survey family and friends of a murderer everyone is always in 100 consistently the same we never thought he could do it <laughs> that's i'm like until he does it it's yeah. so great it's like he would never like crash the plane until he did it and then you're like oh well okay that was, that was really great back in the day saturday night live eddie murphy was playing uh buckwheat and buckwheat was assassinated and the guy that assassinated they went and talked to all his friends do you think he killed buckwheat oh yes most definitely yeah, yeah, that's right in in junior high he was voted most likely to, to kill, kill buckwheat. somebody so yeah that's funny all right kirk you're on the spot do you have a finger of the week this week oh wow um I mean, finger of the week. Um, no, but I'll give, uh, you know, since we you went baseball last time, I'm giving a... Last three times. I'm giving a call out to Sam Burns of winning Dell match play uh, this weekend, which is he beat his buddy, Scotty Scheffler. The finger goes to Austin Country Club for, like, overplaying their hand and losing the golf tournament. So there's now no more professional golf event in Austin anymore because they, the PJ tour didn't renew it. So, um, I'm giving the finger to Austin country club for trying to negotiate too hard. PJ tour said, not interested. We're going to relocate, maybe change the format, change the date. Um, so that's my finger of the week. Ah, there we go. Everybody. Thank you for tuning in this week. If you enjoyed the show, <laughs> please pass it on, share it with your friends, subscribe, do all the things that podcasts want you to do. Peace out.